Hi everybody, I hope that you're well and that you've had a good week and it's good that we're able to meet together in this way again today. Some of you may be aware that sometimes when you buy a music CD and you play the CD right the way through to the end, you get what they call bonus tracks. Uh, these are songs or pieces of music that aren't advertised on the label. They are extras that you didn't expect. Today, we're going to have a bonus track on our series on spiritual disciplines, Habits for Wholeness. Uh, we did end the series last time with a sermon from Psalm 1, but I'd like to spend a couple of weeks looking at one more spiritual discipline. In this series, we've been considering a number of habits that enable us to live as Jesus lived. Uh, we saw in our very first sermon that, that just like a tennis player has a secret life, including diet and exercise and other habits that enables her to play well on court, so Jesus had a secret life that enabled him to love without expecting love in return, to care for people, to face temptation, to perform miracles, to die for the world. And very often in our lives, we try to be like Jesus without training to be like Jesus. We try to do the hard things like obey the Sermon on the Mount or love our enemies without doing the day-to-day -day hard work of training to be like Jesus. And so over the past few weeks now, we've been looking at some of Jesus' habits uh, we looked at his habit of silence and solitude, of fasting, public worship. Today we come to a spiritual discipline or a spiritual exercise that we can do that Jesus couldn't do. We can't really call this one of Jesus' habits because he couldn't do it, but we can. Can you guess what it might be? It's the spiritual discipline of confession. Jesus didn't spend time in confession because he's the only human being ever who never had anything to confess. As the God-man, he was sinless. This isn't one of Jesus' habits, but he did speak to us about it in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we've touched on this already when we looked at the spiritual discipline of prayer, but in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught us to pray in this way. Matthew chapter 6. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we also have forgiven those who have sinned against us. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. Part of the model prayer that Jesus taught us includes confession. Again, as with so many of the spiritual exercises that we've looked at in this series, confession is not a big part of our world. Confession is not high on our list of priorities, even as Christians. Cornelius Plantinger, uh, the great Christian theologian and philosopher, writes these words in his book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. He says, The awareness of sin 
used to be our shadow. Christians hated sin, feared it, fled from it, grieved over it. Some of our grandparents agonized over their sins. A man who lost his temper might wonder whether he could still go to Holy Communion. A woman who for years envied her more attractive and intelligent sister might worry that this sin threatened her very salvation. As a child growing up in the fifties among Western Michigan Calvinists, I think I heard as many sermons about sin as I did about grace. The assumption in those days seemed to be that you could not understand either without understanding both. But now the shadow has faded. Even the word sin now finds its home mostly on dessert menus. Peanut butter binge and chocolate decadence are sinful. Lying is not. The measure for sin is in calories. Today's confessionals are less direct. The newer language of Zion fudges. Let us confess our problem with human relational adjustment dynamics and especially our feebleness in networking. Or, I'd just like to share that we just need to target holiness as a growth area. Where sin is concerned, people mumble now. There are probably a, a couple of reasons for this. Firstly, there's a theological reason, if you like. As Christians, we've been taught that our sins have been forgiven in Jesus. And that is true. We'll look at that again in a moment. Our past, present and future sins have been dealt with. But that sometimes leads to the feeling that it's not really necessary for us to confess our sins. It's all been forgiven anyway. In fact, I remember reading about a man who was visiting a theological college and was chatting with the librarian. and She was saying that she'd worked in various libraries all over the city and that this theological library was the worst when it came to overdue library books. And the man asked her why she thought this was. And she replied, Grace. The students think that they've been forgiven anyway so they don't really bother. So a theological reason for not confessing sin. Secondly, there's a cultural reason why confession is not particularly popular. Confession is very negative. All this talk of sin and shame and guilt, it's not very seeker-sensitive. Surely if we want to attract people to the church, then we should avoid words like sin and guilt and rather emphasize grace and victory and prosperity. And thirdly, there's a psychological reason why confession is not a hot topic. Some psychologists tell us that we are victims. We are victims of our upbringing and our culture and our DNA. We're not really responsible for our actions. Every time we sin, we act out the ways in which we ourselves have been wronged, and so confessing our sins would simply be legitimizing those who hurt us. And so for these and other reasons, confession has been largely pushed aside in our churches and ignored. Even within our own congregation, sometimes confession will form part of the pastoral prayer, but not every week. It's not a regular part of our worship, as it is in other church traditions. 
But Jesus clearly expected us to be involved in regularly confessing our sins. Did you notice he taught us to pray, give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins? We regularly ask for bread and we regularly ask for forgiveness. Why does Jesus tell us to confess our sins? Well, before answering that directly, let me mention two things that we don't do in confession. Firstly, I don't confess my sins in order to inform God about them. When I confess my sins, I'm not telling God something he doesn't know. It's not like that when you're at a family birthday party as an adult and you finally tell your mom that it was you who put worms into granny's tooth glass when you were a little boy. All these years she wondered who it was and now she's finally found out. We don't confess in order to inform God. Listen to the words of Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. When I confess my sins to God, I'm not telling him anything that he doesn't already know. One of the great confessional prayers of the church begins like this. Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hidden, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. So I don't confess in order to inform. Secondly, I don't confess my sins to implore. God to forgive me. I don't confess my sins because forgiveness has to be wrestled out of God. It's not as if God is some angry, judgmental father who has to be bribed and mollified before he will forgive. Not at all. The psalmist reminds us in Psalm 103, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. The Apostle John tells us in 1 John chapter 4, God is love. And God loved us so much that he sent his son into the world to die for our sin. John goes on in that same letter to say, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And what is an atoning sacrifice? Well, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. He lived the life I should have lived. He died the death I should die for my sin. And in return, he offers me his righteousness. If I've confessed my sins, I stand before him, clothed in his righteousness. I don't confess my sins because God is reluctant to forgive me. 
So if I don't confess in order to inform or implore, why then do I confess my sins? Well, firstly, confession liberates me. In Psalm 32, David writes about the relief of confession. And he says this, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Owning up to my sin frees me from the guilt and the shame that so often burdens me and weighs me down. In the movie, The Talented Mr. Ripley, one of the characters cannot believe the news that he has just heard that a friend of his has killed someone. And he speaks about this to his other friend, Tom Ripley, who himself is actually the one who has committed the murder. Let me read the conversation to you. I don't believe that letter, do you? Dickie's letter, do you believe it? I don't know what to believe. Can you imagine, though, if he did kill Freddy, what that must be like, just to wake up every morning? I mean, how can you just wake up and be a person, drink your coffee? Well, whatever you do, however terrible, however hurtful, it all makes sense, doesn't it, in your head? You never meet anyone that thinks they're a bad person. I know, but you're still tormented. You must be. You've killed someone. Don't you just take the past and put it in a room in a basement and lock the door and never go in there? That's what I do. All of us have a basement, a place we don't let anyone else go into and into which we rarely go ourselves. And we expend a great deal of time and effort keeping things in the basement, down in the basement. Moses in the Bible had a basement. The first time that we meet Moses as an adult in the Old Testament, what is he doing? He's burying the body of an Egyptian man whom he has killed. He's burying him in the sand. What is it that we are burying? The fact of the matter is that burying something takes up all our time and energy and emotion. It did for Moses. We read that the next day Moses sees two of his fellow Israelites fighting and he goes to them and tells them to stop. And one of the Israelites says to him, So what are you going to do? Are you going to kill me like you killed that Egyptian? And Moses realizes that his secret is out. And what does he do? He runs. He runs out into the desert and for 40 years he becomes a shepherd, which in those days was the job of a 10-year-old. No one ever grew up thinking, I want to be a shepherd. Moses spent 40 years hiding his sin before God touched his life. Confessing my sins to God and to others liberates me. It allows me to live life in freedom. 
And secondly, not only does confession liberate me, but it also learns me, <laughs> if you'll excuse my grammar. Confessing my sin can help me from falling back into the same old sins all over again. Confession teaches me. The book of Proverbs tells us, He who conceals his sins does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. In other words, there's a direct link between prosperous living, living life well, and confession of sin. Confessing my sins can help me from repeating them if I confess them properly. Which brings us to the question of how do I confess my sins? What do I need to do? Well, let me suggest a couple of steps. Firstly, there needs to be some preparation. I need to find a quiet place and a quiet time where I can be alone with God. And then I need to ask God to come with me as I look into my heart and into my life. We've already looked at Psalm 139 where the psalmist says, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. But then you'll remember that the psalmist ends the psalm by saying to God, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. It's important that I ask God to search me. When I go down into the basement of my heart with my little torch, I need to ask God to go with me for two reasons. Number one, my heart is deceitful. God says in Jeremiah chapter 17, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind. You see, if I go on this journey of confession by myself, I'll easily justify myself and make excuses for myself. I'll be like those in the book of Isaiah who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. And so I need God to go with me. But secondly, I need to take God with me on this journey of confession, because if I go into the basement alone, I may be overwhelmed by my sins. I will be weighed down by too much blame and guilt and shame. So firstly, preparation. Secondly, I need to examine my heart with God. I read recently about a pastor who each evening at about nine o'clock in the evening would go outside to his basketball hoop and would shoot hoops for about half an hour. And what he did during that time was just to reflect back over the day. He'd just think back about what took place over that day. And yes, there would be sin there an angry word, a moment of lust, a failed opportunity to encourage someone. But there would also be good, a small act of obedience, a quiet prayer that was truly meaningful, a word that was fitly spoken. At the end of each day, we need to look back over the day and remember both the good and the bad. Maybe we could use the Lord's Prayer as a way of confessing, or maybe use the Ten Commandments as a guide. Just each day, look back 
and thank God for the times we have obeyed him and ask his forgiveness for the times where we haven't obeyed him, where we haven't walked with the Spirit. And when we examine our hearts, there are probably two questions that we should ask. The first question is, what happened? And I think it's important to get specific. Sometimes by generalizing things, we lessen their meaning. So on the opposite end of the prayer scale, we sometimes pray, Lord, thank you for all your wonderful gifts. And in fact, in doing that, we actually end up thanking him for nothing. In the same way, praying, sorry for all that I've done this week, doesn't get to the heart of it. We need to be more specific. Lord, my boss asked me where I was at two o'clock and I said I was with a client, but actually I'd forgotten about the meeting. And then secondly, I need to ask the question, not just what happened, but why did it happen? Often we sin because we're trying to meet legitimate needs in illegitimate ways. And if I examine why it happened, that can sometimes prevent me from doing the same thing again. Thirdly, confession needs to include a new feeling. In other words, I need to feel remorse over my sin. And there's something very important here. Many people, when they think of sin at all, think of it in terms of a law that has been broken. But we'll never really make progress in our battle against sin if we think of it in legal terms. We have to think of our sin in terms of a relationship that has been broken. Stephen Charnock was a British pastor who lived in London in the 1600s, and he spoke about the difference between taking your sin to Mount Sinai, where you see sin as a broken law and where you feel upset about the consequences, and taking your sin to Mount Calvary, to the cross, where you see what effect it had on God. Let me read to you what he said. A legally convicted person cries out, I have exasperated a power that is as the roaring of a lion. I have provoked one that is the sovereign Lord of heaven and whose word can tear up the foundation of the world. But an evangelically convinced person cries, I have incensed the goodness that is like the dropping of a dew. I have offended a God that had his hands stretched out to me as a friend. My heart must be made of marble. My heart must be made of iron to throw his blood in his face. Perhaps we may need to pray, God, help me to feel sorry about this. Allow me to feel just a little bit how you feel about this sin. The Apostle Paul speaks about two kinds of sorrow in the book of 2 Corinthians, where he writes, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Worldly sorrow would include being sorry for being found out or excessive guilt. Instead of giving life, it leads to death. But godly sorrow is an appropriate emotional response to what we've done. It leads us to seek restitution and reconciliation with God. It leads us to change and to grow. It leads us to grace.
that leads to the fourth aspect of confession, and that is a new resolve not to do the same thing again, a resolve to make right the wrong that I've done. A good example of this would be Zacchaeus in the New Testament. We read that Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And finally then, confession includes a new hope. When we think of the word confession, we probably picture somebody looking sad and upset, kneeling in sorrow. But while confession does include sorrow, as we've seen, confession actually involves joy, because someone who was lost has been found again. Jesus spoke about this in his famous parable of the prodigal son. Before the son can even blurt out, I'm sorry, his father shouts out, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And in the parable just before this, the parable of the lost sheep, Jesus speaks about a shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep to find one lost sheep, and when he finds it, calls his friends and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. And Jesus says, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. When we confess our sins, we experience the blessedness that the psalmist spoke about earlier. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven. We experience what John wrote in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And then finally, the hardest part of confession. I shouldn't just confess to God. I need to confess to one other human being. James, the half-brother of Jesus, writes these words in James chapter 5 and verse 16. He says, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for one another so that you may be healed. I think that James is speaking about the emotional and sometimes the physical healing that takes place when we stop hiding and pretending. James isn't speaking here about going and confessing to a priest and being given something to do to get your sins forgiven. We've looked at this already. There is nothing that I can do to pay for my sins. That's a price that only God can and did pay. James is speaking here about something that the Alcoholics Anonymous movement knows and understands. Step five of their program. We admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. We've seen already that confession liberates us from the burden of hiding and pretending. There is another person who knows the worst about me, but loves me and supports me and encourages me and holds me accountable. Now, we should probably be careful here. It's not appropriate to tell everyone and anyone everything that is going on in our lives. It would be great if that could happen, but sometimes people aren't trustworthy. 
you need to find yourself a mature, maybe older Christian man or woman that you can share your heart with. Did you notice that the Lord's Prayer is in a group context? It's not an individual prayer, it's a corporate prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, forgive us our sins. In saying those words, we recognize that we're a community of sinners. We stop pretending in front of each other. We come before God and confess. So often our churches maintain a conspiracy of silence where I don't ask you any difficult questions and you don't ask me any difficult questions. And so we all struggle along in fear and guilt and loneliness. It would be much better if every morning when we came into church, we went around in a big circle and introduced ourselves by saying, Hi, my name's Andrew and I'm a sinner. There's a very wonderful scene in the movie The Mission. I'm not sure how many of you have seen that movie. It's a very powerful movie in its own right. But there's one particular scene that shows a picture of confession and forgiveness. I'll try and attach the movie scene to our WhatsApp. And if you're not on the WhatsApp group, go to YouTube and search for the mission armor scene. And you'll see the scene that I'm referring to. One of the characters in the movie is a man called Rodrigo Mendoza, played by Robert De Niro. Mendoza is a mercenary and a slave trader. The movie is set in South America, and Mendoza is the man who goes above the waterfalls to kidnap the local Guarne Indians, men, women, and children, and sell them into slavery. He's a hard man. And early in the movie, he also becomes a murderer. He discovered that his brother had fallen in love with his fiancée, and so he has a sword fight with him and kills him. And because it's a duel... The law can't touch him, and he is consumed by guilt. He is overwhelmed by it. And a Jesuit priest, Father Gabriel, played by Jeremy Irons, goes and talks with him. Father Gabriel has been working with the tribes above the falls, the very place where Mendoza has been kidnapping people from, and he invites Mendoza to come and work with him at the mission above the falls. And somehow Mendoza decides to come, but he takes all of his equipment, all his armor and swords that he's used as a mercenary, he makes them into a huge bundle and he drags them with him on his way up to the mission. It's a treacherous path that involves them climbing up waterfalls. Several times Mendoza climbs a huge hill only to slip in the mud and have his bundle drag him all the way back down again. As the men are tied together, sometimes Mendoza's burden even endangers their lives as he slips and flounders. You see him struggling all the way up these massive waterfalls. Finally, they make it to the top of the falls, where the tribe has their village. And all the members of the tribe are thrilled to see the missionaries as they appear over the top of the, of, of the ridge. There's great rejoicing until they see Mendoza, their enemy. They recall in fear and hatred. One of the tribesmen runs to Mendoza, who is kneeling in the mud, and places a knife to his neck, shouting at him. He speaks to 
Father Gabriel asking why Mendoza is there. We can't understand him exactly because he's speaking his native language, but we do understand what happens next. Father Gabriel explains that he has come to serve them. The tribesman moves his knife from Mendoza's neck to the rope that holds his burden. He cuts the rope and the burden goes crashing all the long way back down the falls. Mendoza bursts into tears and the tribesmen laugh at him and then embrace him. John Bunyan pictured a very similar scene in his book The Pilgrim's Progress. There the lead character, Christian, approaches the cross and loses his burden. Let me read to you how Bunyan describes it. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up with the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble, and so continued to do so till it came to the mouth of the sepulchre, where it fell in, and I saw it no more. Have you experienced that in your life? Perhaps even today, for the very first time, you could come to God and ask his forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Just coming back to Moses for a moment, we mentioned him earlier in the sermon. Much later in the book of Exodus, Moses stands in front of the people of Israel and he interprets the thunder of God. And one of the things he is free now to speak to the nation is these words, Thou shalt not kill. All of the shame, all of the hiddenness, all of the guilt, Moses could leave that behind and move forward. May God give us the grace to do that in our own lives this week. Amen.